Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more, more from myself and more from life. I'm your host, Ellie Nash. I sit down, sometimes with one person, and often with a panel to talk about various topics I am interested in learning more about. In this episode, I sit down with Rav Daniel Katz, one of the coolest rabbis you will meet. He has an incredible life journey. He didn't start off as a rabbi, I don't think at 12, 13, 14 years old, he was voted most likely to become a rabbi. But somewhere in his 20s, he found Jewish mysticism after investigating a number of other religions, ideologies, practices, and so on. You know, this conversation is more meaningful to me than just a conversation because I grew up in a Jewish Orthodox environment filled with terminology about God, filled with ideas about God, and in many ways that didn't work for me. I didn't leave there feeling spiritually at peace, spiritually in tuned. I didn't leave there feeling whole. I didn't leave there feeling a love for God. And there was a point in time where I resented God, maybe even hated God quite strongly. And my only understanding of God was a Jewish God. So in a sense, I threw the baby out with the bathwater. When I came into recovery, specifically 12 steps, but really all aspects of recovery and the spiritual life that it entails, I started re-looking at some of the Jewish teachings, re-looking at some of the Jewish master's stories and approaching it after I was able to get past some of that resentment and some of that hate, approaching it with a new set of eyes. And hearing Rav Daniel Katz and having these kind of conversations with him is personally healing for me to be able to hear some of these concepts that resonate so strongly with me in Jewish language, which is where I come from. And it's a part of me that I'm certainly proud of, but felt very disconnected from and resentful towards for some time. Another thing that's been, I guess, personally vexing to me is the fact that Judaism is the oldest religion, and there's so little that we see about it in normal everyday life. We see synagogues, but how many of us have been invited to Jewish meditation? How many of us know that there is even a rich Jewish tradition of meditation? We hear a lot about Buddhist meditation. We don't hear so much about Judaism, and it's one of the oldest religions, certainly one of the oldest uh, large religions. So it's really cool to me to be able to have these conversations, find these sources, and speak to someone who is extremely well-versed in this, like Rav Daniel Katz. In the first part of this conversation, uh, we'll talk more surface level of addiction and recovery. And then in the second episode, uh, which will be released in the coming weeks, uh, we'll get much more into the details of the 12 steps where we can find some of those in Jewish mysticism and where it may disagree. Another word for Jewish mysticism is Kabbalah. Some people may be familiar with that. Let's jump right in. I'll see you on the other side. I've heard your name a number of times, Rav Katz, but I've never actually spent time on like listening to a full share of yours. And a few weeks ago, I was in Tennessee with my family on vacation and I, on my wife's family's WhatsApp chat, someone put a SoundCloud of a, a share of yours, which was, why do the same bad things keep happening to me? And uh, I listened to it, I think about an hour and a half share, an hour and a half class, and I listened to it, and I was very impressed. I was moved especially by you bringing in your own experience into it. I remember the story of going to Davin at one in the morning, and <laughs> some guys showing up in the middle of the forest telling you, <laughs> what are you doing place. in my place? Still his so, place in the forest. Shouldn't still Ian's place in the forest. It's not a very nice thing to do, but apparently <laughs> right. Apparently he owned the forest. How was I to know? Right. And then you connected it to your own personal sense of not belonging in different areas. And then once I heard that, the rest of the, the stuff was a lot easier to, to listen to, right? Meaning it, it opened the, the path for the rest of uh, the year and right. was very enlightening and very interesting. So I reached out to Yochavet Seidoff, who I know has a lot of respect for you and your work. And I mentioned that, wow, like that share was amazing. So I'll put you guys in touch. So we spoke and after the, uh, we spoke for about an hour. And after that, I felt this urge inside me to write something up on the 12 steps because I shared a little bit about my own experience and what I gathered from the call is that you have run into a couple people over the last few years who have experience with the 12 steps, but there wasn't maybe a consistency to it. And I felt like I needed to write something on it. So I wrote like a four or five page synopsis of my own experience. And I should qualify that from the beginning that I'm not an expert on the 12 steps. I haven't studied it and compared it and compared the way different people read it and compared it against exactly what was available before at the time, the way an expert researcher may go about it and look at all the stories, simply my own experience, like the way it was handed down to me through the uh, through the process. So one thing I'll avoid saying for those who are sensitive to the an anonymity factor is we can talk about the 12 steps, but we won't speak about any specific group. There are many different 12-step groups. There's Alcoholics Anonymous is the most famous one. 
I'm not part of that group. I don't speak on behalf of the 12 steps. I speak simply from my own experience. And that's the same thing that I wrote up to Rav Katz and just my different experience um, with it. And it was clear to me that Rav Katz was sensitive to the prayer and meditation aspect of religion and that that practice is there. And I sensed that he saw that not everyone he met in the 12 steps has that same practice necessarily. So I figured that if I can put something in front of him, it can at least give him a more well-rounded view of the 12 steps in case he encounters the need for it or someone encounters the need to ask his advice. And uh, Ruf Katz suggested that maybe follow-up conversation would be recorded. So right now, you guys have invited into a follow-up conversation. Between <laughs> you are a bit of a best friend. So where are we starting today, Ellie? So I guess what, what intrigued you about what I sent to you that said, hey, maybe a further conversation is warranted? And where, where are you in your own understanding of the, the 12 steps prior to anything to do with the communication with me? And I'm sure you've researched a little bit in preparation for this. Sure. Well, my introduction to this world, I've never been through these kind of challenges and degrees of dark days myself. I had my own spiritual awakening and I was not born religious. I'm not sure I'm religious today, maybe on a good day, depending how you define the term. But I definitely had a deep spiritual awakening. I, I was a part of, you know, growing up, I, I didn't know anything about my own tradition. I was into all the good places that a young Jewish boy goes to search for spirituality, if it was Buddhism or Sufism or Hinduism or, I don't know, socialism, feminism, all the, all the isms, right? And I had, it's not really a nice discussion, but I had a very profound supernatural experiences for, in a very t- intense way of a year, which, you know, it led me to Jerusalem. And without going into my own story, that's not really the subject tonight, but needless to say, I, I learned in all the main yeshivas here in Jerusalem and, and grew in Torah and Mitzvahs. And I also then had my, um, let's say, disenchanted period where I kind of felt I'd come closer to all these details, but I still didn't know Hashem. Oh, I knew Hashem, but at least not the time I was in Yeshiva. I don't think I'm the first or the last person to experience that. So for many years of teaching, you know, I started teaching more and more Kabbalah and Hasidus. But the, the Tachlis to me, which is the essence of Kabbalah and particularly Hasidus, is that these things aren't supposed to be theoretical and they're certainly not supposed to be dogmatic. We're supposed to be experiencing the supernatural through the mitzvahs, and, and, and that's the definition of what the mitzvahs really are, is to lift us up into a supernatural reality of transformative experience. It's supposed to make us emotionally healthier and, and live supernatural elevated lives, literally. I mean, that's all the way through Hasidus and, and Kabbalah. And when you understand that frame of reference, it's all the way through the Torah. I, I founded a few years ago a project called the Elevation Project. And I'm only saying now, not to promote, but just to give a little context of how I initially got into the 12 steps. I mean, never having gone through these challenges in my life, you hear about the 12 steps, but they don't interest you. And, you know, it's something interesting out there that, you know, people, messed up people going through. I don't know who they are. I'm not saying we are. You know, it's this the outside view. When I founded the Elevation Project, the goal was to mainstream and bring back to the forefront of Jewish practice, emotional, transformational teachings, meditation, high-level supernatural experiences. That's why I was first drawn towards Torah, because I'm interested in those things. And, and the more I learned, the, the more further I got away from them. And the goal was, could we bring them back? How would, how would being able to take a group of people in a room and give them transformational spiritual experiences, how would that affect outreach? How would that affect inreach? How would that affect religious life in the Orthodox? Aren't we supposed to be aligned into the nations and share that with the whole of the world? And that's what we've been into. Within that, there is a lot of deep themes about that we have to, Torah has to be much broader in its reach in the world that we have to be much more health, emotionally healthy and more spiritually developed to attain these heights and creating, you know, a very complex and beautiful, rich curriculums to teach people advanced meditation and emotional transformation. Now you see I'm, I'm edging towards the subject a little further and further. What really got me interested in 12 steps was part of the model of the curriculum I, I was and I'm developing for elevation is we needed to set up a Chaburah model. So Chaburah is the idea, which is all the way through Hasidus and all the way through in Kabbalah and for sure in Musa, is that people got together. The old wise men of Jerusalem, even a hundred of years ago and 50 years ago, they used to have Chaburahs every single day. And I jokingly say they were... What? What's that? Chaburah means what? A Chaburah means a group of people that get together every day to work through other emotional stuffs, to work on themselves, to confess their sins to each other. This is all the way in Musa and Kabbalah, that there's a sadic in Jerusalem called Svimeh Zewerberg, and he runs these, and he has all these traditions that he teaches them. So they would get together every single day, 
even the, you know, the, the greatest rabbis in small groups, sometimes four, five, six, they would share their challenges. They would all work on certain breakthroughs at a certain time. They would pray together. I was taught if, if you, a person goes in the mikvah every day, then you go in the mikvah and you pray for each other person when you're in the mikvah. They would confess to other their, their, their challenges. I even heard there's a story about a group of them that one of their, one of their daughters was getting married one time. But they, they, they were so committed to meeting every single day. And I'm bringing this up because I get that it's relevant. Yeah is that even between the time when the chuppah ended and they all went to eat, they all had their daily meeting and, and were together, right? So I was very, very interested, as I am now, of realizing that if we're going to teach a transformative methodology based on Chassidus and Gabbala, to teach people to have a supernatural experience, to teach people to understand not religion as a dogma, but as you said, as a direct divine experience and connection, then one of the things we needed to do was create a model which was more than just a teacher teaching the students, but the t- students were empowered to work together and, and transform each other and take those transformational teachings. Now, when I was speaking about that to people, you'd be shocked, Ellie, that people brought up something called Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> so that's when I started going, oh, yeah, that's probably the most successful Chabura model in all of right. history. And there's, there was fascinating things about it for me educationally, meaning there isn't management. So these people manage to do it themselves, right? They're not necessarily trained or spectacular leaders. That's not the charisma that's holding together. So that's when I started to look into what was going on here. And I found out some very, very fascinating things, but I never went into the, I didn't break down the 12 steps. And I always knew, like I like to do, I'm an integrator by nature. So I always knew, you know, one day, I'm sure there's something deep in the 12 steps and I want to look into them, but I was looking at the model Begadol in a general sense. Right. And the, I found I mean, some it's interesting... It's turned into probably over 100,000 groups. If you take all different 12-step groups, there are probably over 100,000 groups around you the world. You mean commonly in the world? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I've heard it's like tens of millions of people. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something where you'd have to say from a Torah perspective, from a Kabbalistic perspective, that there's something supernatural happening at the core of that to allow it to have such continuum without management, without force, right? And the bottom level of that is people need it because of the darkness individuals confront in the world. But the fact that it's stayed together and been so successful over the years, um, again, it's not perfect, as, I'm, as we know, and as Richard says, but there is something profound there. And so many people have been benefited. There's a blessing in there. And that was kind of what was interesting me about it in the research that I did. When you sent me that letter, I got distracted on that subject. But I, I'd found some, I'd uncovered some interesting things in the research, which were my kind of hush, my sense of what was going on in it. But that was the first time I literally looked at the 12 steps in detail. Until then, I was like, well, it's, it's a model and I'm interested in the model. And, and when I look at all these things, my nature is, you know, what Kabbalistic models could we see hidden in there? And what I looked at was there was no Kabbalistic model to find. It was literally the halacha of triggering the spiritual experience. It was literally the halachas. You know, you don't even have to go to Kabbalah and Hasidus, but it, it was literally like a textbook, Rebbe Nachman, a textbook, Balatanya, a textbook, Baal Shem Tov, Chabura, designed to trigger and sustain supernatural experiences. And then I was like, when I was looking over what you're saying, I was like, well, this is crazy. And that's when I, I further did some research to say, where did they get this from? And, and that's when a lot of kind of lights went on. One of the things you said, I don't want to segue too far into that, but it was interesting to me. You said that after you had a, a really spiritual experience in Israel, that the more you learned, the further away you got from that initial spiritual experience. Did I catch that correctly? I had the, the original spiritual experiences in different orders in different places. But yes, I, I would say that it's, it's safe to say that the Yeshiva experience for me ended up being the opposite of what, what I thought I came to Israel for. Do you have a sense for why that happens? Yeah. Do you want to go into that now? Maybe a little bit. I'm curious just from my own experience, because I've, I've felt that to some degree that, you know, I, I grew up in it. I grew up in Crown Heights, you know, in the thick of Khan Siva Hashem Sabracha, right? Right in the middle of the, uh, the massive amounts of light. And I left disenchanted and frustrated and not a believer of, uh, not a believer in God and not a believer in spirituality, Judaism, religion, any of that. And really the 12 steps and recovery from addiction is what brought me back to it and what's allowed me to uh, reapproach Judaism and reapproach God in a new way. So I'm wondering, was that my own experience? It sounds like- I, I, I think you know that's well. not your own experience, number one. I think you know that. I think that it's exactly what the Baal Shem Tov first stood up preaching about. It's what Yisrael Salanta equally discussed. I think you were brought up in a Hasidic community, as far as I know. I, I, I believe- 
I'm glad we're not saying this publicly and it's just you and me talking to each other. But but I believe <laughs> that if the Baal Shem Tov could, would see Hasidus today, he would say that's basically the, the complete opposite of what I started the movement to be. And I think there's a very deep, deep connection between what I call primal Hasidus, the Hasidus that the Baal Shem Tov in the first two generations after him founded, and what came today compared to what our AA is or, you know, the 12-step program is. And if you if you understand the history of the 12-step program, not like the kind of hidden history of what, what they were drawing on to create it, they were also along that same path where they were rebelling against, if you look about the Oxford group, they were rebelling against dogmatic Christian theology and trying to explore the direct spiritual divine connection as a healing mechanism through the New Thought Movement, which is the, the version, you know, 100-something years ago of the New Age movement. They quoted from the equivalent Lahavdal Elif Havdalah, Emanuel Swedenborgen, if that's his name, who was very much into, if you read some of him, some of his writings from early Christianity as far as I know in the 1600s, some of those things sound literally like Hasidus with, you know, that calling. And I think that I can go into hours and hours of discussion, which is a little off the subject, but in some ways it isn't, that Kabbalistically and historically, we, we are in a long exile, which means we're dogmatically following the rules, but we're further and further away from the direct revelation, direct experience of the rules. You know, uh, you know, I, I had a friend that also was born religious and left the path and, and started re-engaging in Hasidus in a very deep way and came back. I said to him, like, we we're talking one time, like what brought him back? And he said to me, a little Marshall, he said, it's a parable, like someone bought him a computer, you know, and he was typing away at the computer for a whole year and using it, it was very exciting, you know, and he was using it for like, having around with it open up every day and work on it. And after a year, he suddenly looked down, he saw this cord and he said, you know, what, what's this cord? And he plugged into the wall and suddenly the computer turned on, <laughs> right? So he said like, there's this thing all along, but I was using an external way, but I never knew the light on the inside. You know, I have a little daughter, two-year-old, and she dressed up for Purim as a mummy. And uh, she walked around the house. She had a, a cell phone, but it wasn't on. And she walked around for the whole day just going, oh, no, 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 no. she can't even speak. But she was mimicking what she showed her mother do, but there was no voice coming in. She wasn't talking to anyone. So I kind of feel what has happened historically after many years of exile and being Jews being in a fine flight mode from so many challenges is we're left miraculously, beautifully maintaining the details of the law, but we've lost the devacus. We've lost the divine revelation, the energy, the magic, the supernatural connection. And, and therefore we've lost the emotional transformation it's supposed to cause, right? It's supposed to create deeply healthy, deeply connected, deeply alive human beings. I don't think either of us could say, honestly, it does that. Again, I have many beautiful religious people that I know and I love. I'm not speaking us versus them, but there's definitely a pattern to say that. I, I, when I hear stories of, of holy Jews like your own, I, I totally think, and I'm not saying this to be charming, if I was brought up religious, I probably wouldn't be religious at all today either. I'd had very profound supernatural experiences that led me on a spiritual path. And I was drawn to Hasidus and Kabbalah to become religious because they were speaking directly about the experiences that I experienced. And, and from that, I, I had to learn. I'm glad I spent time in Yeshiva. I'm glad I learned I'm glad I learned Hebrew. I'm glad I learned to think with the lucid clarity of the Talmud and its logic system. I'm glad I learned the halakha because it allowed me to go deeper into these things. But what I felt, it was a body without a soul. And that's what the Hasidic master said, that it would be, and it was becoming until we needed to re-plug in. What you're you're saying is that what the Baal Shem Tov almost revolted against, he would do that again now if he saw. Yes. I mean, it's worse now. Again, it's just you and me talking, so no one's going to be offended. It's It's worse now because Hasidus was supposed to be the solution. And sometimes today, because there's the problem, I'm not saying more than the Livish world, each world has its challenge. But when you're teaching the Torahs of the solution, but today we learn Hasidus intellectually. Today, Hasidus can be also dogma and more hummus, right? And even the most beautiful Torah, which is brilliant and genius and lights up my soul, it doesn't, just because you learn those Torahs about to fill and the gematria is about to fill, it doesn't mean you know how to pray in a way that you're doing his pastor's agashments with the vacas. So I believe, and this is really on subject, I believe that, you know, we've run these seminars now all around the world and taught thousands of people how to achieve the vacas. And I still hear from people, what do you mean? That's something for Zadikim, it's not us. And I, I believe with all my heart that, that addicts on a very, you know, in the fall into the bottom level who suddenly get brought upwards and healed through these kind of programs. I believe both their addiction, their addiction is a form of seeking escape through higher connection, ironically. And and the healing comes by giving them that true actual supernatural connection. And I believe it's ironic that a soul like yours brought up in a Hasidic world has to find divinity in there. The, the way you, you find divinity is actually the instructions that the Baal Shem Tov gave. It is the instructions that the Baal Shem Tov 
that, that the Rebbe Nachman gave. And I believe if we could turn on that supernatural connection and teach children, I teach it to my children, teach it to your children, how to have divine connection, that we don't have to fall so low to connect so high. What struck me most about watching some of your classes, now that I've probably watched about six or seven of them and each one about two hours long, the way you talk about like very esoteric concepts, the different levels of godliness and how it comes out and contracted and it's like your head wants to explode from it. But then very quickly, you're speaking to someone one-on-one about their personal experience, their struggles as a parent, their struggles with trauma, with health and bringing it in a very practical way. That's what I saw the most, like taking it all the way up and also very, very, very practical. The higher the teaching, the lower it must go. The, the, the highest light of Hashem is 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 able to penetrate into the greatest darkness. You know, th- th- that's why it even says in Kabbalah Hasidus, people in the darkness, they need the highest teaching, the highest light to go in. So for me, that's part of the magic is to understand the deepest ideas, to have the deepest experiences, and then help people in the darkest places with that. As far as I'm concerned, if the Torah doesn't go that low to help the souls in the darkest places, then I don't know if it's real Torah. I don't know if it's high as we think it is. Torah is supposed to be helpful. Kabbalah is supposed to be helpful. It's supposed to raise us up. It's supposed to transform us. And if not, I, I don't know what we're doing. When you learn the supernatural powers that Chazal, the Talmud says about someone that learns Torah, they're protected. You know, they're spiritually healed, all these kind of things. We don't see that. And I think because because we're not learning how to do it with a, with on, on a you know, in, with a higher power, with a higher power within us. You know, that, that word higher power really unlocks a lot of things, even for religious Jews, because we're so used to thinking God and Hashem that we kind of end up thinking about it in a very external way. But a higher power is like something which, again, is a more experiential language, and it's something I need to let in. I speak, it opens up doorways for people, windows for people, and possibilities. One of the things that's coming up for me as you're talking is hearing, I don't know how long ago it was, but it was before I got into program and before I was, I had even admitted to myself that I was an addict. I I speak openly and publicly about a porn addiction and a sex addiction. And one of the nice things about that addiction versus others is you don't reek of alcohol. Your eyes don't look necessarily bloodshot. You can look bloodshot from the computer screen, but they won't look bloodshot from drugs or things like that. It's a little bit easier to hide that there's an addiction present versus other things. Like for me, I, I specifically didn't like to get drunk. I didn't like the sense of losing control. So it was very difficult for me to acknowledge that I had an addiction at any point. But prior to any of this, I had seen a, a conversation with Rabbi Tversky. So Rabbi Abraham Tversky was one of the first to speak openly about the steps, about recovery, and most meetings are in church basements. That's the fact of, you know, where the, the community center that's most likely to give a room for free to people is is a church. And people went to him and said, is like, is it okay? You're telling people to go to the 12 steps or walking into a church. Is it okay for a Jewish person to, to walk into a church? And Rory Tversky said, yes, because of life and death. And one of the things they asked him was like, but we have everything. We have the Hasidus, we have the, the Musr, we have the Kabbalah, we have everything available to us. So he said, if you find me rooms of people who are reading those books, like their life depends on it, I will send them there. But in the meantime, time, the only place I have is to the 12-step groups. And it sounds like the same thing you're saying with that Chaburah model and the Elevation Project is to, to have people who are willing to openly for brain, openly talk in those ways about our deepest, most personal struggles. I, I think that's true. I, I think there's a, a wave of uh, emotional intelligence and awakening and desire for spiritual ca- connection happening within the religious world. I think the Baal Shiva movement, the newly religious friends who are part of that world, including myself, including people out there, I think they're causing an awakening like that. They're causing, you know, they want to be able to talk openly about emotions. They want more level of integration. They're more demanding of spiritual experience that prayer be meaningful that groups connect in a more meaningful way. I think there's tremendous change happening. And I, I, I think that all of it is fulfilling the Pasuk that is already said in Tanakh, that, you know, the days will come when people are hungry and they're thirsty, not for bread and water, but it's it what's the Devar Hashem, the word of God. But the word Where Devar, does it say this? It's in Tanakh, I can show it. So yeah. It's a famous prophecy about the end of days. And the, the line Devar Hashem means the word of God, but the word Devar actually means an object, something tangible, something tangible of divinity. And I, I think that, you know, people who hit rock bottom, they have no choice but to turn to spirituality. And some still begrudgingly, it's not like a you know, simple solution for many, right? There's many people who, you know, take up the 12-step program and still try and secularize it and still try and base it. Many scientists do research and say it's really about the group bonding. It's really about the trust that they build. But the founders of, of AA, you know, they held it was all the essence was to trigger the spiritual experience. So I think that there are many people seeking direct spiritual experience, if it's for their healing, if it's just for their own sense of transcendence. And I, I think that's that's happening more and more in the religious world. And part of that, there is more and more acknowledgement of addiction within the religious world. I don't need to tell you that. I, I think that that 
people more confident into into that. I think there's more acknowledgement today more than ever that marriage in the religious world or raising up children who are not leaving the path because they're not happy. So Hashem always gives us an option to grow in two ways, through positive or through challenge. Um, and I think the religious world is, is has a lot of positive, but is facing a lot of challenge, which is causing some inner reflection. On a good day, I feel quite hopeful that you know more and more of those meetings will be possible and more and more of those people will be possible. When we started teaching Elevation Ray a few years ago, it was already foreign um, and more and more people are coming to our programs. And, and you see that people are going, is it possible? You know, I spoke a, a couple of years for you know a, a good friend. He, had, he has a, a program like this and he works with a lot of people. And it was all, already fascinating to see people in that program listening to meditation. What is meditation? What's the possibility of meditation? People you would not expect to be open. People that maybe were brought up in Hasidic or Litvish communities, ultra-Orthodox, never would have thought as that as possible. But now they're hungry for that. So I, I, I see and I believe that there's awakening coming in very positive ways. And I, I hope they don't always have to be triggered by falling into the darkness. But, uh, by, hitting but the, could, by hitting the bottom. By hitting the rock bottom, right? But that also can bring people to very high places. Is a concept of an addict, that word, however we define it, however we define it, because we can spend two hours just on that term. But in general, the way we understand an addict, someone who's addicted to alcohol, someone who's addicted to drugs, is that concept addressed in Kabbalah or Hasidus in any way? Like someone who just takes it just a little bit further so there, there, there are examples that the Gemara brings, like a Benso or Moira, of, of people that are particularly, let's say, have a destructive personality or destructive behavior and certain consequence to them. The word addict itself comes, as far as I know, comes with the Latin word addictus. And addictus has this kind of duality where it kind of means in one sense devotion and dedication and sacrifice to something. Um, but in the flip side, it's something which is more about, you know, betraying and abandoning. So it's a kind of an idea of something that you're devoted to, which is, for lack of a better word, sabotaging your life. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in a Kabbalistic model, I think there's a reason. There's something called clippers that we all have and something called the clipper kasha, which is a very strong clipper, a very strong block. In the Kabbalistic model, I, I think it's extremely important that, you know, I kind of think when I learn these, these Kabbalistic teachings and I see what people are dealing with, in, in 12-step pro- programs. And I, I have great respect for science. And I, I love the kind of mirror, as the Zohar talks about, the kind of bridge between science and Kabbalah. There's such revelations, such gifts there. But sometimes I th- see things in science which I think are particularly dangerous or damaging. Like, for example, calling addiction a disease. And I'm answering your question by saying this. I, I believe the Torah would say it's absolutely not true. And you should never call it as such. The new kind of, in the last kind of decades, the, the, the statement that people who have, you know, certain genetic predisposition to addiction. I think that itself can create a kind of illusion, which is also highly destructive. Highly destructive means it, it demoralizes someone. So and you, you're, saying two, you're saying two different things. I just want to parcel. One yeah. is calling it a disease and one is the genetic. Yeah. I have not found it in my own experience, myself and others, for it to be genetic, right? Unless we say that there's family dysfunction that could be passed down from one to the next. So in as much as dysfunction is created, but I have never heard anyone say. Well, the, the, the statement is there's literature you can read on this in, 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 in the world of science that discusses research in the areas. Genetic meaning that why do some per- people respond to drugs with extra vulnerability, extra susceptibility to forming addiction where other people may take the same drug and not. I'm not saying this is the answer, by the way. I'm saying these are part of right. the hypotheses of the science. But I don't know if that's the same as a disease model. The disease no, model so it's is not saying a disease that... Model. And right. another disease model says that, you know, the addiction which develops in the mind is so destructive that it destroys, you know, chemically speaking, in the brain, it destroys it to the point where the recovery is not possible, so to speak. Now, all I'm asking is what is that what addiction is? Is, is, it, is this, what what is the point of addiction? What is the point of addiction? You know, we saw some people asking questions when they when they signed it up. And person was saying, you know, do I just have bad habits? Am I addicted? Where do I cross that line? So all of this is my way of setting up from as I understand, and I'm not here speaking as an expert, I'm not an expert in this field. I'm certainly not expect, expert in addiction or the 12 step. Well, we're just having a dialogue together. I wouldn't even say I'm an, an expert in Kabbalah Hasidus, but we're talking out from my learning, your learning, we're sharing together all together. It's very, very simple. There are different stratas of human consciousness, okay? They're called Asiya, Yitzira, Bria, Atsilas, and above Atsilas. And represented, that they take, some of you are into the Kabbalistic terminology. Some of people just want to know, you know, how do we save ourselves? But there's the, you know, the most basic level, Nefesh Ruch, Neshama, There's the physical, there is the emotional, there is the intellectual and there's the spiritual and there's the root soul, okay? Those levels are the full dimensions of human consciousness. And that's what's possible. So I believe that from a Torah perspective, there's something called there's something called habituation, hegel, 
right? And we become habituated. Hegel Nasser Tevashemi, that the more we become habituated to something, this is just the Talmud now, right? It becomes our second nature and defines us. And in each of those levels, we have our own capacity to fall in body. That means I eat things that are bad. I get used to lying in bed, right? I get used to those kind of things. And there's emotional levels. I, I emotionally program myself. I want pleasure. I can associate pleasure with a destructive means. I can associate pleasure with, with elevated means, right? I have, I have certain beliefs about reality. Some of those beliefs are true. Some of those beliefs are not true. Productive, unproductive, destructive, fine. I have spiritual energy around me. And this is a, a less understood element. But the more my body, my heart, and my mind are connected to spiritually productive things, the more I draw, and we're talking Kabbalistic now, spiritual abundance of energy, of light, of connection, of love, of blessing, which according to our sages actually generates providence and things happening in our life of positive energy, of positive opportunity. If you will, this is called the Koyach HaMoshech, or also known today as the law of attraction. And if I pursue negative, destructive, fragmenting, disconnecting things, and I become obsessed with them and a aligned in a negative way, then I track myself what's called shaden, which is negative energies, destructive opportunities. I bring that more and more to my life. So from a strict Torah perspective, Kabbalistic, Hasidic, however you want to call it, addiction is, I believe, is as simple as if I get my body and the chemicals of the body and the neurology, right, the, the, the chemicals and the hormones addicted in a certain way. There are many people that can try alcohol and they have fun with it. And then they go back to their life. They can try heroin, smack pornography. They have fun with it and they move back to their life. It doesn't mean it's good. It just means it is what it is. But then they have certain emotional things. They suffer from fear, from pain, from anxiety. And they start to say, my way of overcoming that they've been through trauma in their life is that I want to feel the pleasure, the buzz, the release, the control, whatever emotional thing they're getting. And then they rationalize it and justify that, right? This is the only way I can be myself. Really, it's not overcoming me, etc. So what they're doing is they're creating what's called a clipper, a negative expression, a destructive expression of body patterning, a destructive emotional expression, a destructive mental belief system about it. And then you get into what's called free fall, which means the more you do that, the more you hardwire that, the more you go over and end, then, then all those things are getting darker and darker, more immersed in that. And they're binding together to become a clipper cash, which means a extremely hardwired approach, right? A level which they're falling to. At that moment, what they can do is the, the, something called the mochen is mystalic, which means the energy and blessing we have in our divine soul, which is the light that illuminates every single one of us in that religious conversion moment. And I see the light moment. That's what happened to, you know, Bill when he founded Alcoholics Anonymous, when he had, he was, you know, taking Spiritual the village on it. And he had, he said, I'm giving myself up. And if Hashem, you're there, God, if you're there, answer me. And that's what every single one of them have had. And what he was able to do was shift out of the negative spiritual energy around him, which was depleting him even more, and bring down a divine revelation. So from the people I deal with, one of the things I can speak from is I, I've dealt on, with thousands of people around the world in their own emotional breakthroughs from trauma and all different things. And I'm not saying a trauma or you know a person eats a lot unhealthy or I'm not of course we're not comparing that to the the depth of the pain of true addiction but I believe it's the same thing just taken to a further further level across right it's taken further and further down further and further down until the person fundamentally loses themselves and that means they do not believe that they have ability to choose I'm not talking about the humble moment of the, the first of the 12 steps but it is when a person is really they've lost the capacity to choose their own life and I, I believe that the definition of addiction, my understanding on that sense, is the degree to which your actions, your thoughts, your speech, and all the parts of your consciousness are really acting in a way that is not in alignment with the world. It's sabotaging your will, your true self, your true values, and you feel helpless in your power to stop that. Right? And, and, and by that definition, you could say 98% of people are addicted to their cell phones today. And, and, and a lot of the definition of addiction really does fit um, cell phone addiction in that sense. But obviously, we're talking how far could that drop and how much more of those things get hardwired to the negative. But I, I want you to know what Rebbe Nachman says, and Rev Desla says this as well, and the very, very powerful words. One day, I'm happy to read them to you on the inside. 
but just off the top of my head, he's a, he says, I want you to know that no matter how far you fall, no matter how habituated you become at every level, you always have a soul, you never lose it, and you always have free will, the capacity to choose. He says it's a rule of life that it's never ultimately taken from us. And no matter what we've done, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how hardwired it is, he says in our own language, it's always there to choose out of. So the short answer to addiction if you will, if you call that short, is that a person is simply hardwired all the dimensions of their psyche to associate them, their, their patterns of thinking, of feeling, of speaking, of talking with that to a point where they feel they're unable to turn that around or control that. I'm interested to know if I say that, do people resonate with that? Does that sound true or not true to the nearly 500 people right there right now? I'm curious to know. What do you think about that, Ellie? So in terms of, there were two things you said, which I want to go back to. One is about the disease models. I want to flesh out a little bit because certainly from the 12 steps perspective, looking at it as a disease is the correct way. So I'll, I'll go into more what I understand. What's the definition the, of disease? Right, right. As a disease model. So I, I think what it's fighting against the disease is suggesting that it's a moral failing or a failing of willpower on some, some regard. And I, I know that this is probably the most common misunderstanding from anyone, like the superficial understanding of the 12 steps, right? Most people have seen in a movie at some point, hi, I'm Bob, I'm an alcoholic, right? They've seen that line. And then what a lot of people, and I've heard this from therapists, I've heard this from experts, is to say, why would I sit there? and acknowledge after 15 or 20 years that I am an addict? Like, why would I want to take that on? And why don't I use the language of, you know, I struggle with alcohol? Like, why do I say like, I'm an alcoholic? I can tell you from my personal experience, this is where the disease comes in. It's not that we're powerless, which is another word, one of the first steps. It's not that we're powerless completely. It's that we're powerless alone. And that we need is the support of others and a spiritual connection with a higher power. And powerless in the current state and the current way of operating. That's what we're saying. Correct. Before I step in into a greater way of operating. Yeah, one, one way when I'm speaking to people is if I'm wrestling with a professional wrestler, I, I, I may debate them. I may, <laughs> I may do a lot of things, but I'm not getting in the ring with a professional wrestler. And what we see a lot of people try to do with addiction, everyone tries to do with their addiction, is in some way have their cake and eat it too, right? Can I somehow watch porn every so often and still get the benefit without the downside? Can I still drink, you know, here and there, right? Only in the evenings and maybe I won't drink alcohol, I'll just drink wine. There are so many different variations of it. Anyone who's, who's an addict has experienced this, trying to figure out a way to have their cake and eat it too. And what the 12 steps introduced was don't moderate this. You are powerless over it. Don't get in the ring with the wrestler and try to say, maybe if I grab his foot from this angle, I'll be able to topple him over. Like, no. So it's, it's not saying as an absolute statement. It's saying as, as the hashkaf, the angle that you need to understand to, to evolve to the next step of dealing with this. There are things we can do to not get beat up by the wrestler, but one of them is not wrestling with them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it, it starts with that. Yeah. So that's, that's the first thing is, and the reason we do that is because you, you alluded to this in terms of the rationalization and our ability to lie to ourselves is epic. All of us as, as humans, that's the thing we do better than others, right? My bicep looks- fundamental human flow, right? My bicep looks so much better from my angle than it ever does from a camera. And this is just like every part of us we're able to do this with. And to be able to bring ourselves back to that very original place we were I tried. I can tell you where I stumbled pretty heavily is, so when I came into, uh, I'd been in therapy for a while and at some point, a few times was introduced that maybe I have an addiction to pornography and I'm, I'm using it to medicate, right? And I want to be clear, I'm not an anti, there may be a lot of people who have that message. I'm not anti-pornography. That's not my message. My message is that for those who struggle with it to be honest about it. And that may be the first step to, to getting out of it, to be able to say, hey, I struggle with I, I struggle with this versus saying this is bad for anyone under all circumstances, right? The same way a recovering alcoholic is not saying all alcohol is bad under any and all circumstances. So I denied this for a number of years, even within therapy. First, I didn't even acknowledge it to my therapist for the first three or four years. Eventually, I came to that realization that I am addicted to this. I need all the help I can get. And I reached out to people who had experience with that. And as I started uncovering what was beneath it, a three-year period of being sexually abused on a regular basis, that mm. secret buried inside me for 15 years, the pain of feeling different always, right? I never felt like I quite belonged in any, in any group. This um, sense was one of the reasons I didn't want to get drunk. I was afraid of what I would say. Like I never wanted to show myself in any real way and all of those things. So I say, okay, so now I'm sitting there for three or four years, really working through these things. So now if I've gotten to some of the source of the way the addiction developed and I've healed some of those and I've had some amazing 
experiences from it. I, 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 I speak um, pretty often about this, and it's one of the things that have told me I have to. I feel like our experiences are more god, godly than anything else. So the reason I'm here speaking on this and the reason I've been out there front and center is because I'm one of the few people that I know who have had the experience of confronting the person who abused them to be able to kind of that, that you know, was that a part of the, of the the 12 step process was that you working through things it was a combination of things so it was therapy it was in therapy was recommended to me for a while but it wasn't until i was in the 12 step process for about 6 or 12 months that that experience happened and in the 12 steps it talks a lot about taking personal responsibility and getting rid of resentments and seeing everything as godly so i was trying to put all of my experiences in that light Right? Was I abused? Was I chosen to be abused? Did this happen to me for a reason, specifically by this person, specifically in this way? And then to get this addiction and on and on and on and to start looking in this way. And then eventually when I had that three-hour meeting with him and I was able to right-size him in some way and he was no longer this scary monster, I saw him as a pathetic person who had a lot of struggles and frankly has much worse memories than I have right now. <laughs> and once I was able to do that, I said, wow, like I've, I feel like this is healed in some way. I have to share this. But to go back, like the train I was on is the lie I told myself was now that I've healed some of these things, maybe I can go back to it in some way. Maybe I can reintroduce pornography in some healthy way, maybe even in the context uh-huh. of relationships. And then the game began again, really. Right. right. And that's like this denial is always chasing us in some way, always chasing us to come back. And being that that's, it's the first step, it's always the first step. It's the foundation of all of us is that I can be back there tomorrow. Am I powerless today? Yes, I'm powerless, but I also haven't felt an urge for some time to view pornography. But at the same point in time, I know that the ditch is just as far from me as it always was. And that's why every meeting starts off with, I am an addict, right? That's who I am. And it's the first step is reminding us of our powerlessness, reminding us of the disease that we have. I think a good analogy is diabetes, Yes, we're okay with the insulin and monitoring it. We're okay. We're just like anyone else. But if we stop the shots, if we stop the monitoring, we can fall off the deep end tomorrow. And that's that humble reminder that, hi, I'm an addict. Hi, I'm powerless. By introducing ourselves and always bringing us back to that state of humility and that state of honesty. Can can I say something to you? you, And you say right or wrong, right? I, I I want to understand if I understood the certain mechanism that you said. First, I just want to say your story is really unbelievable. And I hope, I assume, and I know it will be inspiring to so many um, and explains a lot about your journey, but it's not everybody is blessed to overcome the addiction. Not everyone is blessed to face the abuser. Not everyone is able to have those things. And And then the way he responded also was amazing. Like he started breaking down crying. Right. Wow. Like that's not everyone's experience. I mean, you'd wait for him to also start with his excuses and, you know. He started could. with that, but eventually he turned to the therapist and he said, can I get, go back home to my kids? Am I a monster? Because he abused me as a teenager, right? You know, from my experience, it makes no he difference. Was a teenager? He was a teenager, but if a teenager throws a mortar it rocket, blows up, right. damage no, is the same. Yeah. But from the teenager's perspective, when they become an adult, it could be they can be different, right? And that from his perspective. Right. So he was saying, hey, I haven't done anything as an adult, right? And he took a lie detector test and everything else to, to support that. But still, he like once he saw the way he affected me, like I was able to break through those several layers of denial on his side. Mm-hmm. A, he really did it. B, it was definitively sexual, and C, it had a lifelong impact on me. He couldn't breathe. He was hyperventilating. And when I had that experience, that was very, very unique. And I've helped a number of people confront their abusers since that time, and no one had quite that same level of experience right. that I have. So right. I know it was very unique, and it's a reason I feel charged to be to vulnerable this. and to him to face it. I mean. It's profound for him and it's profound for you watching. Baruch Hashem, as much as I can say that appropriately, that you have to go through that. But that, that's a very, I'm sure, healing response. I have a question for you. And I know some people want to go through the 12 steps and we'll, we'll go through them. Mm. I always have a red flag when a person says the, the MO of AA, if you will, is you have to stand up and say, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a sex addict. I'm still that. I'm still that. You know, the, the classic idea is that in Hasidus is you are an Ephesians, you're a divine soul, and you're not that. And part of the ultimate healing comes from the shift of, of self-perception. Am I an addict? Am I a healed addict? Or am I a divine soul? So to say that all of the life, a person always has to think of themselves as an addict. Again, I'm, I'm going to correct myself in a second, but I, w- I want you to tell me if I'm getting this process right or wrong. 
I, I see there's three three steps. The the, the 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 first step is when we go through the pain, when we go through the trauma, and we're defined by the pain or defined by the trauma. I'm an addict, or I'm an abused child. Fine. And then the second stage is the evolution, the awakening of consciousness, where I'm going to confront that. I'm going to give up the you know break the addiction. I'm going to confront the abuser. That's when we call I'm a survivor or I've I've overcome it. But that this, that's still a level of exile. It's still a level of identity. It's still I'm defined. You know, sometimes I see. You know, I, I'm blessed to know and help even a few, if I can say that. You know, ch- children or adults that have gone through sexual abuse, to, you know, and overcome that and turn it around. And and first, their life is defined by just trauma. And the second level is is they work through their trauma and they confront and they build and then they're a survivor. But the word survivor still means, to some degree, they're defined and limited by that journey. And I think there's a level ab- above that. Doesn't mean they forget it. It doesn't mean they forget the abuse. That they forget the horror. It doesn't mean they forget, you know, that they've overcome that. But it's that they, they don't have to live a life that's defined by the positive or the negative of the darkness. So, what's and, your question? So, here's my question. The question is: Does a real a person really need to say forever? I'm an addict. Is that simply just an MO to make sure that for the foreseeable future, I will never self-deceive myself. And therefore, it's a way of keeping me framed in the right way. But truly, one day, I could be free. Or is it really the perception of AA or 12-step programs that you are that forever? <laughs> Certainly, if you're walking into a meeting, you're that, for, you're that then. Right? You're virtually so, that forever. And I guess, present. you know, is there the possibility that there are some outliers to that? Sure, right? I don't think the, the AA, you know, I, I don't think 12 steps wants to take a monopoly on anything, not God, not spirituality, not healing, not anything else. It's simply a path that has worked for many people. So while there may be a few people who can completely transform themselves. I think it's the 12 step, the founders believe that most people need this forever. And to be clear, that's one truth that they're saying, right? Is, is say it from that perspective, but very clearly in the big book, the big book is the, it's the book, the book that was written is called Alcoholics Anonymous. That's but in the program, they call it the big book. Even other programs of 12 steps will always go back. That's kind of like the, the Bible. And it talks a lot about addicts. You know, if you say, what, what is someone defined as? They're not defined as an alcoholic. Their life is defined by service. That's what it recommends more than anything is to become a vehicle for God, for spirit to be able to channel his work through you. And that's what the 12 steps demands more than anything. So while there's the truth about addiction, if you read in the big book, it says very clearly that a recovering alcoholic should not stop himself if he has a need to from walking into a bar, from um, going to a party or the equivalent with porn addiction. For two or three years, I had a lock on my phone and I needed that for a time in order to stay away from porn. If I need that forever, I am not recovered. I want to say I'm not recovered because recovered sounds like an absolute. I'm not in a state of spiritual fitness. That Ellie, do you, do you need that lock now? No, I don't need that lock now. What, what was the decision for you to remove that lock? Aren't you putting yourself at risk? Aren't you an addict? Right. So that's exactly the question, right? So both truths are 100% there. Originally, I needed it because I found myself tripping up on it. But practically speaking, it's very inconvenient to have a lock on your phone. So so you're sitting there like, hey, I need to download this app. Or I had, when I first was working to stop myself from watching pornography, what was interesting was one of the lies I told myself was it never affects my work. I don't watch on the work computer. But when I locked off all my other computers, then suddenly I'm sitting on my work computer and I wanted to. And you don't have to go to a porn site to see pornography. You can see it just on anything, including Google. So what I had to do was limit my computer to such a degree that I couldn't even see Google images to make a basic presentation for a work project. So I would go to someone's desk in the office. And at that point in time, I wasn't as public about it. And I'd say, hey, I'm struggling with a presentation. I don't know why my computer's not down loading certain images. That's what you Can you help me? Can you help yeah, me with right, this? Right. I had to go through major steps to be able to, to use technology or use anything else. And after a certain period of time, I just let me see what happens if I don't have it. And being honest with someone, right? So you're, you're never working alone. What I heard from uh, Rabbi Chase Taub, who wrote a great book on addiction, he says the ism that you spoke about earlier, the ism is I sponsor myself. Any ism, right? It's like, I'm my own boss. I know. And one of the things that the humility of the program that it teaches is, you know, check your stuff with someone else. Everyone needs someone to check themselves with. So I'm not yeah, making the decision. Well, I'm just like, hey, you know, it's been a while since I went there. You haven't got any notifications. There are some programs which will give you a notification if you try to if you try to break through and it gives a notification to someone else. Like, would it be okay if I remove this? What do you think? So, yeah, give it a shot and see how it works. And 
if you end up going back there, yeah, if I slip today, there'll be a lock on it tomorrow. There's no question about it. And I think it's it's sitting there with that understanding versus I'm some sort of addict. I'm less than my wife. A lot of the pride that I have of being able to talk something like this, I have a wife and two kids and one on the way, God willing. And my wife, it's in many ways a bigger effort for her for me to stand on the TED stage and talk about porn addiction and, and things like that. But she's the you one can do who a gave, TED talk about that from her perspective. <laughs> <laughs> she's the one who gave me my pride where what she told, she's like, I trust my husband probably more than most wives trust theirs because of the work he's doing and because of the mm. fact that he has real with it. So it's, right. Let me give you a, actually a very practical example. I should have said this at the beginning and would sum it up. I don't get drunk under any circumstances. I have a limit of two drinks. And what I tell people is if I go beyond that, I think I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way that's the only I have explaining it. So it's understanding with that humility that I'm still very much an addict. And it's happened to me and my relapses with pornography and with sex addiction happened almost always as a result of being drunk and allowing myself just to get a little bit loose. So understanding that I don't have that luxury, the same way a diabetic does not have the luxury. I'd, I'd be interested from a Kabbalah perspective if this exists, or maybe there's a level where this wouldn't exist ever, but I can't get to the place of being tipsy because of that understanding. But I certain, but I walk with my head high. I don't Because walk. of the understanding in one line that? Because of the understanding that if I'm uninhibited, the way alcohol sets most people free, I will then, go back. Is that an understanding or is that your tradition? Meaning I know that that's where I got to. That's no, this is not everyone's. When I say tradition, I mean, life. from your experience, you know, that's where you get to. Yes. I'm not saying this is blanket statement. So my, my next statement is from a basic to a perspective. Is that hardwired into you? Is that genetic predisposition? Or is that just because how we're programmed and you don't have the ability to change that? You couldn't work through that. There are many people that are born, you know, for example, where we come from, non-religious and we party, we hang out and you train yourself, you open yourself up. I've worked with, you know, hundreds of people one-on-one personally. They come with certain beliefs and certain habits. And all of Hasidus is about this core mechanism of when you open up into the vacas, when you open up to high connection, then in that place and in that state, you are able to bring up your assumptions, your beliefs, your habits, and you're able to release them in the light. I'm I'm not ruling it out. And I don't think the 12 steps would rule that out. I think that if you're talking as a blanket statement and you're going to cover more people, you're going to cover more people with that protection of always remind yourself where you came from and the lies you've told yourself. So as a way to stay humble and be honest, but that's not to detract. That's exactly the point. You said it right there. It's a way to stay humble and be honest. It's a way to keep yourself checked. It's a way to be real, to check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? But is it an absolute statement, right? Is an absolute statement you I can't believe it's true. I don't know whether they felt it's true. And I I believe that absolutely all the way home change is possible. No, there's very little dogma in the 12 steps and there isn't much room for it. There's, it allows for so much flexibility and there's so much of it that it's like, if someone's practicing it and it's not working and maybe there's something, it's not working with one sponsor, find someone whose tradition is slightly different and there's different explanations. There isn't this rigid, like that it got into the nitty gritty of every single thing. The prayers aren't specific. It, it recommends one of the lines in, uh, in, in the big book is don't be afraid to take from religious people. Not a direct quote, but there's a lot of good that comes from religion. And if you're part of it, by all means, right, there isn't this dogma. So when people are projecting dogma into the 12 steps, it's very similar to what you said about the Baal Shem Tov, right? He came to revolt against dogma, right? right? Not, not for then you to take his teachings and make them dogmatic. And back into and there's flexibility. I've heard people describe themselves in a different way. I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm just an alcoholic. You know, I struggle with alcohol addiction. You're not thrown out of the rooms if someone says, I struggle with alcohol addiction versus the standard, I am an alcoholic. Well, there we have it. Episode one of my conversation with uh, Rav Daniel Katz. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I got a lot from the conversation. And it's interesting that the rabbi was so perturbed that an addict would continue reminding themselves regularly that they're an addict. And I'm not sure where I stand on the issue. You know, if there's a time and place where that isn't necessary for me, I know that it's helped me to some degree. I also don't identify only as an addict and it's not the first thing about me, even though I talk a lot about it. What I did hear recently after this podcast from someone who knows the history of AA well, that in the very earliest meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, people did not introduce themselves as addicts. They introduced themselves as members of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I think the rabbi would probably be okay with. So maybe it's just another example of a revolutionary figure 
putting something out there to change a conversation, to change the way we look at things, to not be overly dogmatic about stuff. And nevertheless, people come in and after a little bit of time, fluid ideas turn into cement and dogma sets in just because people are people. Either way, it was interesting for me to explore this with the rabbi and I look forward to releasing the second conversation with him sometime soon. Please share this podcast, subscribe, give it a couple of stars or five stars if you like it. Thanks for tuning in.